we are now recording. Excellent news. Good evening, John. <clears throat> Hello. <coughs> How are you? Sorry, I haven't done my vocal warm-up exercises this evening, so... Uh, I'm good. Yeah. You? Yeah, worn out. Busy day? Stretched thin. Stretched thin, like too little butter on bread. I'm... Yep. Uh, welcome to North v South, the podcast that is and isn't about design. This is episode 75. Uh, I feel 75 today. <laughs> Ooh. I was going to have an old-fashioned, but I realised I didn't have any oranges. So uh, I'm having a bottle of Spitfire. Mm. You got Shep- a beverage this evening? Shep- is that Shepherd Shepherd's Neem? Shepherd's yeah. Um, I've got a London Pride that I'm just finishing. Yeah, mm. I like a pint of Pride. Yeah, it's actually really good. They've changed. They've they've redone their bottles. They're sort of tall and thin now. Yeah, okay. They're quite nice, um, and it is a good beer. I forget how it good is. it is. Yeah, uh, and I've got my next one up. Uh, it's been <laughs> I like that day. you've got a queue. Yeah, is a proper job. Hmm. From St. Austell Brewery. Not convinced by them, but they do Doom Bar, don't they? They, they do. do Doom Bar. <clears throat> but I had pie for my dinner tonight. I've already eaten pie, Rob. You've already done the pie? Well, I've saved some. Oh, okay. A little, a little corner right. of uh, England, I always okay. call pie. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, hang on. I'll open this proper job. How did... Uh how did your editing go on the train today? Uh, not bad. Uh, yeah, no, it's pretty. Uh, it's cool. Uh, an app called Ferrite. Um, they all have very are, cool names, don't they? <laughs> yeah, which is an. Uh, I think Ferrite is. Isn't that the stuff that you is like the coating on magnetic tape? Oh, maybe. Is it like iron? Sounds like an iron ore, doesn't it? Yeah, because you used to get. Chrome, didn't you? Posh kids at school had chrome tapes, and then you could even get a metal tape, couldn't you? That was yes. like the, that was CD quality. Yeah, <clears throat> I always had the cheap C nineties from or, from uh, Boots. Yeah, there was a, there was a fashion, wasn't there, for a while for transparent tapes. Yeah, and we used to draw on them with markers and stuff mm-hmm. when you made mixtapes. Oh, that yeah? Kind of all tapes became transparent, didn't they? In the end. Oh, yeah, but the box was transparent. Everything yeah. was transparent. Yeah. Uh, I liked the Maxell. Yeah. Um, so. Wasn't it nice, though, when you unwrapped that, you know, you got them, they were oh, individually yeah, yeah. wrapped, weren't they, like cigarette packets yeah. in cellophane. You unwrap one, oh, it felt good. Oh, it was exciting at Christmas where you'd get like a, a pack of six blank tapes. Yeah. How things have changed. <clears throat> I love a bit of blank media. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear! So, uh, what's on your desk, John? Oh, it is, and well, I've, although I've even had a tidy up this week and a clean, um, <clears throat> the uh, my desk is awash with junk. Um, apart, aside from the empty bottle of London Pride and the <laughs> bottle of Proper Job, there's a there's a sort of congealing pie. There are two envelopes that arrived from uh, an agency that we'll talk about later. I've got a new plant that's there, um, a book, uh, Elvis Costello book that somebody sent me right. uh, about his life, which I'm looking forward to reading. A pile of unread creative review. Why I ever resubscribed, <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, yeah. I never get time. 
Um, a few things to repair for Kitty. Need super glue. Uh, yeah, and work very little. <laughs> Not much work on there. Uh, yeah, so you, it's an it's an absolute tip. I see. Yeah, that sounds like quite an exciting tip. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Um, I have been, though, accidentally. I've got a new uh, a label printer for mm-hmm. um, Press, uh, and it prints sort of 100 by 150 millimeter labels. Yeah. Uh, but I've been accidentally not realizing that I've been using it as a desktop printer. <laughs> so I've printed out lots of labels <laughs> with uh, artwork all over. <laughs> so there's loads of little tiny adverts on stickers. I see. Yeah, which is good. Yeah. Uh, and what else is there? Um, yeah. Oh, like in, in terms of reality, um, just stacks of work. Um, I've been up to London today and uh, met an old client. One at their website. It was one of the first websites I did um, when I went freelance, and uh, for the yeah, uh, like five years ago. Mm-hmm. It's five years this year. Is it? Congratulations. Yeah. Well, thanks. I think it's five years, nearly five years. Um, and it's it's interesting to see that, that what their website's still like. They haven't touched it. <laughs> <laughs> and they've grown and done well. It just goes to show you, doesn't it? You don't really need a website. <clears throat> <clears throat> uh, yeah, so that was fun. I was up in Shore, sort of bottom of Shoreditch. Yeah. Uh, I think you worked in that building, haven't you? We Spitalfields. Spitalfields, uh, I can't remember the street name, but yeah, it's called Spitalfields where you work. It's on the yeah. corner. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I was up on the seventh floor. It's a funny old part of town, isn't it? Mm, because yeah, it's, it's, it's got some really interesting higgledy-piggledy streets with old shops on it. Yep. Uh, that's what got me thinking about our, our topic today, um, which is we're talking about, uh, you know, little brands v. big brands. Mm. Um, how, uh, you know... Many of the high streets up and down this country, and I'm sure in other countries around the world, we've seen a demise in the individual shop and yeah. a rise in the massive conglomerates moving in. Um, and we've seen a slight dying back of that, um, and especially this week with um, restaurants and stuff. We'll get, sorry, I'm digressing, but we'll get on to that. But anyway, it was interesting to see lots of little individual thriving coffee shops and clothes shops and all sorts of things. So yeah. It's nice to see. It's funny, if you walk, if you kind of walk from Bank and cut behind, is it the Broadgate Centre? Kind of Liverpool Street where you cut around the back of Liverpool Street and you come out onto the commercial road that runs up to Shoreditch and you come out of this kind of, in between these two shiny glass monoliths of modern architecture and you're faced with uh, Norton Folgate Street and these this kind of row of really decrepit shop fronts and the contrast in that kind of old knackered London and brand new shiny moneyed London is is nowhere more apparent, I think. Yeah, no, it's good. <clears throat> so yeah, I've been up there and back again. Back by uh, I was back here at two thirty, so we <clears throat> start. Mm. Uh yeah. So other than that, just you know. Doing work. Cool. And did you, am I just imagining this, or did you put up a little Instagram story of all the, the prints that you've been uh, posting out this week? Yeah, I so sent, sent a load out at uh, the beginning of the week. Yeah, um, it looked to be busy. I don't know, 15, 20, yeah. something like that, That's 20 good. orders, uh, which is great. Um, we've had, um, we just had a little quick flash sale. It's, it's, 
it is uh it's funny to note that um people love a sale they do don't they <laughs> yeah uh yeah but it's um they've got some lovely new products and i've been playing around bits and bobs but um yeah little time and got a new postal system which has just slowed me down massively <laughs> Not sped things up as it was meant to do. Uh, and I apologise to customers who may be receiving the wrong packages. But um, I uh, <laughs> I packaged everything up and then realised I didn't have a clue what was in any of the packages. Oh, my. So it could be like a special surprise. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good luck, folks. <laughs> uh, uh, I shouldn't be telling you that. It's fine. Well, one arrived today and it was fine. Yes, absolutely. Oh, there we go. Well, on my desk, yes. Uh, finally, managed to get one of these commissions uh, finished and approved, which was good. Um, that's the one I showed you. A, I sent you a little pic of that um, the other day, but that kind of came back another two times for tweaks. So that was quite laborious. Uh, quoted for another illustration job today, which I always find. A really difficult task, you know. How do you charge flat rate, day rate, hourly rate? No idea. <clears throat> Make up some numbers. Um, I I've done a little trio of um, cityscapes in my sketchbook. I started a new sketchbook and did a little cityscape. Posted that on Instagram a week or so ago. Did another one. Did another one tonight, and I'm, I think I'm going to try and fill this sketchbook with little uh, kind of triptychs three illustrations at a time all in the same theme and try and fill the entire book like that I don't really sketch in my sketchbooks so I'll just do something else um, what else have I been up to I'm getting it's that time of year again when I'm going on holiday Steph and I are going on holiday so I have to get my reading list <coughs> together because we go for a beach holiday and I don't like the beach or the sun so I lay on, lay in the shade and read. So I generally take about 10 novels with me. Um, so this, so I'll give you my list so far. I've got Embers of War by Gareth Powell, which is a new bit of sci-fi, which I'm quite excited about reading. Have, have you read any of his before? I don't know if this might be his first book. It's certainly two years in the making. Um, I know he's got a couple of other books. Oh, no. The two, you know, at the beginning of a book, it says also by Gareth L. Powell. The two books listed there are out in 2019 and 2020. Oh, right. uh, it says somewhere, <laughs> what does it say? Uh, powerful, classy and mind-expanding science fiction in the tradition of Anne Leckie and Ian M. Banks. Okay. So that's a pretty good um, uh, description. I've got The Three-Body Problem by uh, Chizin... Lou, Chinese author, which was huh? uh, so another bit of sci-fi recommended by I think Pascal Blanche on Twitter. So I've had that a while and haven't got around to reading it. Uh, I've got Murders of the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe, which I've never read. So that's a collection of his stories. Uh, the Limehouse Golem by Peter Ackroyd, which again is a book I've had for a, a couple of months and haven't got around to reading yet. And then a couple of other recommendations that I've just ordered from Amazon. 60 Degrees North by Malachi Talak, which is about the Arctic latitudes and travelling. And The Loss of El Dorado, which is about um, 
kind of the history of colonialism, I think, by V.S. Naipaul. Um, so they were both recommended by Alex Connolly, I think, on Twitter when I was asking for some recommendations for travel books. And whenever I go on holiday, I like to have kind of a travel book type thing to go with so I can read about completely different places. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and that's pretty much it for this week. Um, that must take up a sizable. I think I mentioned this last year. That, that takes up a sizable chunk of your uh, your luggage, right? Big suitcase. There's only so much. You know, you're going to take up a tiny little uh, <clears throat> overnight case filled with with your thongs. Well, I was going to say my budgie smugglers don't take much room at all. Um, no, so basically, you just, you the, just the, swam swam a la mode in uh, in the in the reefs. I'd get arrested. Um, no, basically, my books generally take up the the base of uh, one suitcase, usually. Um, but you know, it's that's kind of what I go on holiday for. Brilliant. Lay in a hammock, read with zero guilt. Mm. Not bad. Uh, book, not bad plan. Booked our holiday list this week. Yes, your uh, France again. Glamping. Right, hardly glamping. <laughs> Tramping. Hang on, where are you staying first, John? Oh, we're going, yeah, we're staying in a chateau. But um, apparently we've got the wrong chateau. <laughs> what? How would you, what? Well, just it was recommended, but apparently they re- they realised their mistake. And then we looked at their one and it was um, significantly more posh than the one we're staying in. Oh, okay. I think our one's just like a country house. That'd be nice though. Yeah, it'd be good. On yeah, the, on the Loire. Want, you don't want anything too snooty. No, I'm not into snootiness. Oh. Had enough of that. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, we're going camping again. I don't, don't get, I won't get a huge amount of time for reading. I, I get more time reading at home because I kind of read late. Mm. Um, but when there's a little one, no reading. And when are you going there? Uh, June, I think. Marvellous. Have you got any news, Jonathan? I've oh. discovered a new genre which I didn't know existed, which is called urban fantasy. Have you right. heard of this subgenre? No, it kind of sounds Neil Gaiman-ish. Yeah, it is very much, um, what's the underground one? Neverworld. Neverwhere. Neverwhere. Yeah. Um, it uh, follows on from becoming a little bit obsessed with the Peter Grant um books. Mm-hmm. And um, I've found out subsequently that lots of people write in that kind of style. Okay. And there's a, a character called Harry Dresden, which is written by a chap called uh, Jim something or other, Jim Butcher. Yes. And he's written, he's written a lot of these. Yeah. I've, I've almost bought those books many times whilst perusing right. the bookshelves of the waterstones. Yeah. They're expensive. So it's, a, I've got a, I downloaded a chapter on, on um, the Kindle and uh, yeah, he can write. So uh, I'm quite. I'm, I, I liked the premise of it of a uh, a private detective who is actually a wizard. There's no mystery okay. about it at the beginning. The actual sign on his on his uh, his um, you know office is yeah. just wizard, and he's called in by the police because there's been a murder. Cool. Uh, and yeah, it's 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 well written. Uh, there's another one that I started reading. Another series. Um, about uh, Essex witches, and uh, I don't like the writer at all, so I'm not going to mention that one. But I have read a book by another Doctor Who writer, um, and I'm not even into Doctor Who, but it's just uh, the um, following on from Ben Aranovich. It's uh, Paul Cornell, 
a writer. Okay. He's he's written a series of books called London is Falling. Um and that is about uh it's kind of a harder edged London based wizard v police kind of procedural. Okay. So following the same kind of theme. Yeah. Imagine I'll, if they were sitting in on a writer's meeting, there might have been a, a little bit of quizzical looking. Yeah, you know, so now you're writing a book about what? Yeah. <laughs> exactly um, what I'm writing about. I'll I'll throw in another one that's similar. There's a uh, an author called Mike Carey, who I think wrote um, Hellblazer or okay. something like that. Um, and he's written these Felix Caster novels. Uh, so Felix Caster is a, a medium in London, uh, but like a private detective medium. And it's a, it's a London where kind of a weird event happened and now the dead kind of walk the streets. So zombies are commonplace, but they're not horror movie zombies. They're kind of shuffling, kind of tramp-like zombies and... It's, it's quite an interesting little world he's created. I imagine it's, I don't really know, um, sort of Hellblazer or Constantine or any of that kind of stuff, but it sounds, you know, very similar, but not dissimilar to, uh, the Harry Dresden stuff. Hmm. Yeah. So it's a proper little, um, thing, isn't it? Proper yeah. Little... There's a whole culture there. Hmm. It's funny, isn't it? As you delve into these little things. Yeah. So news-wise, I have got uh, one. I saw a video of uh, a new video from Boston Dynamics. Now, I think we might have spoken about this when we met last week uh, about the robots. We did mention it, yeah. uh, But I don't think we mentioned it on the podcast. No. Uh, It's uh, a robot that they've built. First, there's a robot that's like a dog without a head. Big dog. Walking walking around. Is that what it's called? Well, the, the kind of original Boston Dynamics one was called Big Dog, yeah. Right. So this is kind of yellow, yellow, um, jerky horror, Japanese horror film kind of uh, yeah. walking beast that is walking around a, um, a laboratory, but it can't get out of the door. And then suddenly an identical version of itself appears, but with a, a black kind of sinister looking arm on sat where its head should be. Um, and that comes out and then just works out how to open this door and then props the door open with its with its paw, which is really kind of chilling, isn't it's it? Very, it's a very strange video. Yes, that bit is chilling because it's a, a very human sort of affectation, isn't it? That how you'd prop a door open. But it's it's also it's a it's a robot that's had an arm put on it, seemingly solely for the purpose of opening that exact style door. So it's yeah. very niche. Um. Yeah, I don't you know, know. What, they, what are they trying to achieve with that? Are they trying to make it look sinister? I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? So uh, Google bought Boston Dynamics, didn't you? Didn't they? And then um, I think they've sold them again now. <laughs> They're just like the rich kid, aren't they? They used to yeah. bring in, you know, the rich kid with the BMX and then next week it was a skateboard. And, yeah. yeah. It always tosses them. <laughs> <laughs> They always had, you know, they had the Atari and then... Yeah, Yeah, every console going. A couple of comic-y bits of news. Um, On Wacom's um, YouTube video feed, they've got... uh, They do a series called Artist Profiles, none of which I've looked at, uh, apart from this one, which is um, 
about a comic artist called Sean Phillips. And I follow him on Twitter. He's a really interesting guy. He works great. And um, it's a really nice little insight into a lot of it's about his kind of process. And obviously it's focusing on his digital process and how he uses the Wacom and stuff. But um, I always find these these little kind of behind the scenes things about how artists, particularly comic artists and illustrators, um, how they work. Um, and you get a good peek in his uh, in his yeah. studio, which is he's always got a cool fascinating. Studio, hasn't he? Yeah. I don't know any of his work, so um, is he a Marvel artist? Well, I, I think he's done dark. I think he's done both, right? Um, but I, I, I can't remember. I, you know, like you, I'm not a huge consumer of comics, so I'm almost more interested in the art as a standalone thing. Um, yeah, there was that film a couple of years ago. Um, what do artists do all day? And Frank oh, Quietly was in it. Frank did you see that well. film? I did, and it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the Sean Phillips. I do love um, uh, seeing artists work. Um, I, I'm a little bit sceptical of, of how Wacom make their films, but I'm I'm, mm. I'm up for it. Yeah. I'll, I'm going to watch it. 2000 AD have got a, a YouTube um, channel, and they have a from the kind of art droids um, drawing board oh, series. Really? And they've, I think they've probably got seven or eight, um, uh, you know, kind of behind the scenes thing about how they, uh, how their artists create a page, which are really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's one by, I think it's Tom Foster. Um, and he's hilarious. He really hams it up. He's the only one right. that kind of makes an effort to, for it to be more than just a little sort of weird little interview. Um, so they're well <laughs> worth digging out. Um, I imagine, I'm just I imagine half of it is. Sorry, what were you doing? Oh no, no, no. Go on. I just imagine half of the the kind of they, they do tend to be quite quiet or reticent, but I imagine half of that is just that kind of imposter syndrome. Yeah, I, I imagine that a lot of in, illustrators must have of just being of of their working practice being exposed. Yeah, I think particularly in illustration and comic art, where there's a kind of commercial bent to it rather than fine art. Um, maybe even more so in comic art because you are constantly follow, following in the footsteps of giants, aren't you? You're, you're always going to be um, kind of comparing yourself to the people that you loved growing up or who've done that particular character before and stuff. So it must be difficult. Mm. Um, yeah, but the other bit of news uh, is about Frank Quietly, um, right. <laughs> uh, which is he's got a book coming out, which is work from his sketchbooks. So not it's not examples of his commercial work or his comic work, um, but it's uh, features all the work from his sketchbooks. So that's Frank Quietly drawings and sketches um, coming out soon. You can pre-order that online now. So that'll be well worth a look. Yeah, he, of his work. he can draw. Mm. Uh, in the words of uh, Vampire Weekend, who gives a comma about an Oxford comma? I do. I love an Oxford comma. Oh, I don't like it. Really? Know, well, well, you know, you you know, you can't deny that they're important occasionally. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. I I say use them with discretion. Don't use them all the time. They're just an unsightly extra bit of punctuation. I it's not always not needed. Disagree more. I know this is where we're going to fall. Use out them as first much as often. No, no, no. Um, yeah, as a as a serial delimiter, then uh, yeah, go for it. But uh, if you can take it out, and take it out, I say. Okay. But this was a uh, 
uh, when it all goes horribly wrong with lawyers involved. Yeah, this is a strange one, isn't it? Yeah, because it's not even an and, is it? It's an or, which, Mm. yeah, again, oh dear. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, But basically it means that uh, a load of drivers in America have won a dispute about overtime pay because they claimed that the missing comma meant that their part of the, um, the delivery process wasn't included in non-payment of overtime. Mm. And because of the missing comma, uh, they've won. And I don't know, what's the pay- payout? It's a lot of a lot of splondulix. Is it? Yeah. Uh, hang on a second. Oh, it's, I've lost the story. Hang on. Don't know. Do you not have your notes up on screen, John? Yeah, but it's gone to a different one. <laughs> I, I, I use my iPad so that I don't get the clicking all over my... Uh, oh, I see. Yeah. But, you know, which would you rather what, have? What would, our, what would our listeners... Come on, listeners. What would you rather have? Clicking <laughs> or doofing? Oh, yeah. Uh, I can't, I'm looking at the article now and I can't find um, a figure... No, the one, the original one, the reason, uh, the New York Times one's been uh, renamed or deleted, so it just says okay. that this page doesn't exist. So, um, yeah, who gives a f- about that story anyway? Go <laughs> <laughs> uh, on, what's, what's your next bit of news? As you've got um, your notes there in front of you now. <laughs> brilliant article about Michael Beirut. Beirut. Okay, I haven't read this. Beirut. Beirut. Um, I hadn't read any. I mentioned that he's got a book coming out, um, but this one, this article has highlighted a um, uh, one of the essays, and it's all about uh, how does he pick a typeface. And I thought this was a really, really good article uh, about um, not about which typefaces you should select, but the reasons why you select typefaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and he starts the story off that he worked for um, Massimo Vignelli, who was uh, one of these classic old school yes. designers who Sorry. only had a, a sort of four or five uh, typefaces that he yeah. chose from. In fact, you know, Lady uh, to, uh, Teresa Rivirus that I worked for when I was uh, freelancing a million years ago, she like had five typefaces mm. that she chose. Um, and it, it is quite common to sort of, you do, you do as you get older. It is like navigate comfy towards, Yeah, comfy slippers, exactly. But his um, his he's got, uh, I don't know how many there are, the six. So I'll quickly run through them. So the first one is because it works. So he says, you know, some, some uh, typefaces just work perfectly for what you need them to do. So, you know, if you're setting very, very small type, then, I don't know, Bell Gothic, which was designed for uh, telephone directories, mm-hmm you know, or Franklin Gothic, go for it. Uh, because uh, you like its history. So uh, you might really love the story behind um, a typeface. So for example, you, you using Eurostyle on your yeah. um, your sci-fi, that's historically always been used as a as a kind of seven, especially from the 70s on, you know, yeah, a, a sci-fi cut. typeface. Uh, then the other reason is because you like its name. So um, he says there's a um, a uh, he saw one that was uh, a student portfolio that had used the uh, had redesigned the Tiffany and Code identity, a la Dribble, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was uh, they they uh, had used the font Tiffany. <laughs> 
he yeah. says, yeah, I didn't like that much. Yeah. Um, and then the designer of the typeface, sometimes you might choose mm-hmm. it because you really, really like the designer. Yeah. Um, and then he says uh, his one is uh, because it was there. And from what I, that's a, actually is probably the wisest of all of his, it is, uh, his advice, because it says, uh, it, you know, the brand was already using that typeface. So why get rid of it? I mean, you know, unless there's a real valid reason for getting rid of the typeface mm. and it's an established brand, you know, why, why, why change it? Um, because they made you. <laughs> That's a brilliant mm. one. Yeah. Uh, and his, his, uh, you know, the client forces you to use a typeface. Um, but, uh, his last sentence in that is brilliant, which says, this is when blind embossing comes in handy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then um, another one is because it reminds you of something, uh, which I guess is the sort of nostalgic um, because it's beautiful. I'm not sure that one's particularly good because it's ugly is great. Um, <laughs> like they really are coming back in fashion, aren't they? The big yeah. old fat, um, you know, the bookmans mm. of this world. Uh and, uh, well, he, oh, God, my God, he's, there are more than six reasons here. Uh, well worth a read. Yeah. Um, just back to that one, uh, where is it? Because of who designed it. I think that one as well is, uh, is if you really admire the, the designer who created that typeface, I think there's a little bit of you hope that some of that is going to rub off on your work, isn't there? You know, if you use a really well-regarded typeface from a really well-regarded designer, there's a hope that it'll make your use of it it'll kind of elevate your use of it to, to their level and also it's a bit of a get out clause you know it's you know if if, uh, if people criticize it you can always just blame the designer type design <laughs> well i think also it's i like to have my foot in a little bit of history when i design so i like to if there is a a, a little bit of a story behind the brand then yeah i like i like you know if you can, if you can, um, if you can weigh that brand in the in the past without, you know, over egging the pudding. So, one of the great ways of doing it is choosing a typeface because no, none of the customers or you know the client clients looking at it will know that that's the reason you've chose that typeface. But you and the person who um, commissioned it will do because you'll explain that to them in the you know, in the presentation or whatever. Mm. And that's a really nice thing because it gives you a sort of slightly warm feeling when you look at that, at that brand, I think. Mm. Um, today I was having a discussion with some clients and it was really refreshing. They were, you know, <clears throat> normally it's like, you know, what are our competitors doing and how do we look as close to them as possible? And they were, they were adamant that they, all of them together were adamant that they didn't want to look anything like their competitors. They didn't want to follow any of the tropes. <clears throat> and that when we did some, when we're going to do some photography or imagery research, it's just going to be things that please them collectively, not necessarily to do with anything to do with the, the, uh, the industry that they work in or, or the clients, you know, trying to please the clients. It will just be things that make them feel warm and fuzzy and that sort of reinforce their brand as an independent operator in the, in the industry they work in, yeah. which was, it was, a, it was, it was a real delight to sit there and, you know, sort of experience that, <clears throat> that expression of, of independence as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've got a very quick uh, thing there. Thanks to Twitter. Uh, Twitter's great for discovering stuff, um, whether it's interesting facts or artists. 
Uh, and this week I came across uh, a French painter and sculptor, Jean-Léon Jérôme, uh, <clears throat> who was around... Alive, the, alive or dead? Dead, around in the 1880s, 1890s, I think. Uh, maybe a bit before. Uh, and he worked in a style called academicism. What's that? Um, well, I would have um, labelled him as a classicist, but um, evidently wrong. So he, he painted a lot in the Middle East and the Far East. And then these beautifully drawn and observed paintings of the kind of normal life in these different cultures. And he's got this incredible way of painting this uh, kind of incredibly rich colours without it, any of it seeming kind of, you know, glaring, um, uh, beautifully observed stuff. Uh, there's a couple of pictures on the on the notes that you can see there of kind of a, I don't know, kind of a Middle Eastern casbar and there's someone pounding pigments in pots and there's another guy with a couple of greyhounds. And I just think they're really, really beautiful paintings. Uh, and it's always nice when you discover an artist that you just had no idea about. They've got an incredible electric uh, sort of top lit essence to them. Yeah, the light, of, of is, that light. the light is astonishing in them. But it's accentuated. It's almost <clears throat> movie-like. Mm. Beautiful stuff. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. You got um, any more news? I've got one, one thing that I haven't even looked at, but my wife told me about, which sounds like a great um, exhibition to, to want to go to. It's, at, it's the Fashion and Textile Museum, is it okay. called? Um, it's, a, it's a T-shirt exhibition. Um, and it's called Cult Culture Subversion. Um, I don't know what exhibits they've got there, but um, I think the T-shirt is uh, an often overlooked design form. Mm. Uh, sniffed at, it's ephemeral, it's thrown away or you know washed to the point of it fading away. But it it has captured the uh, you know brilliant messaging. You know the Frankie says you know the band T-shirt is 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 obviously big, but um, yeah, so I think it's a, it could be a really interesting one to go and have a look at. Cool. I've never even heard of that museum. The Fashion and Textile Museum. It's right at the top of Bermondsey Street. Bear that in mind next time I'm in London. Yeah, it's a good street to go to. Some good, uh, good boozer on there. Mm. Um, uh, my last bit of news is uh, Amazon. Uh, we talked about them a few weeks ago. They've bought the rights to produce new series based on Tolkien's work. And they're going to produce something pre The Hobbit. Um, and now they've bought the rights to produce a series of shows based on Ian M. Banks' culture novels. And they're going to start with Consider Phlebas. Uh, and there's been an, a, a very genuine outpouring of nervousness on uh, social media about this because I think that you know, Ian Banks' novels are, are more and more widely being seen as absolute classics and very influential and uh, I think people are really nervous about Amazon getting them right um, and it's the, the showrunner I think is uh, Dennis Kelly who I don't really know he produced a show called Utopia uh, which I know nothing of so um, yeah who, who knows where they're going to go with this um, lots on social media about it. it's funny that uh, a corporate um, capitalist titan like Amazon is uh, is producing. That was my first thought. He yeah. would hate. Absolutely. 
This well, is a man. This is a man who gave back his passport. Did he? Yeah, he revoked his uh, British citizenship uh, based upon um, decisions made about the mm. Gulf War. Um, yeah, he was anti-government. Mm. You know, uh, people took the culture as being his. You know, he absolutely loved the culture, and while he did love the creation of the culture, they uh, embodied everything he hated about society. <laughs> Yeah, lazy, you know, all take uh, kind of people. I think the I think the Iderans, uh, who are the other um, nationality or the opposing nationality in the in the war that this that consider Phlebas is it, the universe is set in, um, they were more appealing to him than yeah. the culture. I think. Yeah. Um, and they they're actually the I don't know they're the they're the more straightforward of of, of races. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a. I think it's a strange one to start with. I know I can see that they're trying to get a series together, but one, the culture novels don't join up. The, you know, there's no, they're set. There could be thousands of years between the novels, and you're not really sure. Yeah, there's only where a, they sit. A couple of characters get mentioned in in more than one novel, and I think there's one drone that pops right. up in two stories. But they is that the drone that's like beyond ancient? I can't remember now. Um, but also, um, so if they are set, setting that in a, in a linear universe, it doesn't. They don't have to pick that first one, and mm. I think it's probably the hard, one of the hardest ones to actually. It actually, is because I, I, the main I've, characters are like these weird. I can't even picture them in my own mind, let alone yeah. see them on television. And if they end up looking like Klingons, then I'm sorry, I'm going to be switching off pretty quickly. Well, I, th- I, I wonder it, but. Partly it might just be they're trying to do things in the order that he wrote them. But I, I do think that Consider Philippus gives you a good kind of look at Banks' universe. Because there's, you know, there's orbitals, there's oh, big everything. ships, you know, there's everything in there that he, he you know, continues to write about. So maybe it's a good grounding in that way. And it's it's quite action-packed as well, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's, it's non-stop. I mean, <laughs> but, it... Um, some of his other books can be uh, a lot more, um, uh, I don't know, sort of drawn out yeah. or, uh, or uh, oblique in, in, their, in their timelines. You know, yeah. They, they jump around a lot more. I, f- I, f- I found this one to be one of his sort of most literary, though. I found it, well, the first time I read it, I found it quite a difficult read. Um, I've gone back to it and you know, reread it several times and loved it more each time. But, uh, but yeah, it'd be... It's just going to be interesting, isn't it, to see what they do? Yeah, I've just listened to the audiobook and um, as a kind of a, a progression from reading a novel with your own, you know, with your own voices mm. in your head, it was actually it was actually really compelling and 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 a, and a good sort of thriller like novel. Whereas when I, I exactly like you, I've only read it once, but when I read it first, I found it really not hard going, but it was dense. Have you got any more news or do you want to... The new Doctor Who logo. Oh, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it, it's particularly the way they visualised the, the uh, I haven't titles. Seen any, oh, I haven't seen any titles yet, but I You know, I it's like kind it. of got that kind of whip that goes through some of the letters. Mm. It's uh, it's almost like a, the TARDIS or a spaceship flies through them and kind of drags them. Yeah, that's what it, it looks like, yeah, a pen uh, very nice. mink being dragged. Yeah, it's, it's just good updating. I didn't like the previous one, so yeah, good on them. Anyway, that was it. Our topic tonight is 
Uh, we, well, we've, we've only been banging on for about three quarters of an hour. Um, Our topic for the next six minutes is... Yeah. Has social media levelled the playing field? And I mentioned it earlier, but I was thinking about it's very easy now for small companies like myself, like Rob, to uh, illustrators, designers, printers, whatever you're doing, to compete on an, on a, uh, on an equal stage within the realms of social media. And my thought was, how long does that period last? And also, is it sustainable as a small business and to, you know, to remain a small business that is profitable? Um, and or is this just a, a, a false hope and just a, a flash in the pan? And that's what I was thinking. Have you got uh, an example that you can perhaps have, talk about? I have, Rob. hang on edit this bit it's been a long day Rob so I I went to uh, a bike store today um, in just just near Liverpool Street I'm still in the market for a bike I'm still uh, pontificating Mm -hmm. um, because uh, but I am seeing someone about that and I will come up with a decision soon. No, I uh, I really want a British bike and I want a steel bike. And so it's quite a niche thing. Um, it's not a spotty thing. I just don't want a expensive carbon bike. Um, I just want something that I can rattle around on. But it's got to look right. So I found this tiny little company called Fairlight. And they uh, I saw their website. It's beautifully produced website. Their bikes are absolutely gorgeous. They seemed like a kind of a medium-sized business that's really, you know, competing with the likes of uh, Specialized and Cannondale and mm-hmm. you know, all the all the big boys, um, and all the bigger British brand, brands like, uh, uh, for example, you know, Doors or um, oh, I'm just I'm trying to think of smaller <laughs> smaller British brands, but they all get their frames made out in Taiwan and then shipped right. back and badged up. So it's kind of like a, a little bit of a lie. But the, these guys actually, you know, the the tubes are made in Birmingham and they weld them together and put them together in the UK. So they're a little bit more expensive, a little bit more niche, but they're still very popular. Um, so I went in there into this shop that sold them and it's their only uh, outlet. And it's uh, it's in London. It's called Swift uh, Bicycles. They're beautiful bikes, aren't they? Yeah, they really are lovely. Um, and uh, they've done a fantastic design job with them. They're actually, they're, they've got uh, like old English names. Um, yeah. And, uh, they, uh, so I went in and I had a look at one of the models and, uh, they, they've, they've run out and I was like, well, really you've run out. I didn't think bike models ran out. You know, I thought, you know, you just bought them until they brought out the next, you know, they just keep producing them until they bring out the next year's model. Mm. But it turns out that these things are being handmade in the bike shop itself. So, <laughs> so they, they're not only just building these frames, but they have to, uh, they have to deck these out. And this, this was just a normal bike shop. So they built, they managed to build 200 last year. That's pretty good. Going, isn't it? I hadn't, yeah, I had no, I, I had no idea that, uh, the business was this small and this niche behind it. You know, I thought there was a factory. It was specially, you know, uh, kitted out and tooled up, but no, it it is literally just one guy designing these bikes and properly know, handmade stuff. Yeah, they're properly handmade, but they're charging um, fairly reasonable. I mean, you know, they're above average, but they're not <coughs> ridiculous. You know, you can spend well, you can 
you can spend x amount of thousands of pounds but you know let's say they're a they're kind of a volkswagen golf position of a bike i'd put them more bmw 5 series to be honest <laughs> well no because they're not yeah but they're, st- they're steel and people don't like steel because they're heavy but mm. um anyway i i absolutely love them and um, i'm gonna buy one beautiful but, branding really really beautiful yeah, stuff yeah great 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 website really recommend it but anyway so I was then given the the to to put an order in for one. I was given the email address of the actual guy who designs them, so I'm cool. directly in touch with the creator. Uh, so anyway, I was wittering on about bikes, but what was what I found really um, just that got me thinking about this is that I thought they were much bigger than they than they were because of their spread on social media, their web um, presence, and the reviews that they've had in mainstream media. They feel like a big company, mm. but they're not. Um, and that's down to commitment to great design, great copywriting, and a brilliant product. Now, they can compete with the big boys, but how long can they make money for? And that, that's, that, was my, that was my big query is that what, as soon as I sort of scratched the surface, it was exposed that they had, you know, delivery issues and... Um, mm they were struggling with keeping up with the demand and all those kind of things that you kind of assume that the big boys are never going to have that problem. Um, so it was just about like, is it a level playing field that social media is creating or does it allow, you know, does it allow people to, I don't know, create stories around themselves that are actually ultimately, um, fluff. Um, I think it, it it levels the playing field. I don't think it's leveled the playing field. Um, I think a good company with kind of thoughtful design and a, a good ethos that people can buy into can certainly compete for um, for people's attention in the same way that a big brand can. Um, but I think it's funny that you say you know they've they've kind of got delivery issues and stuff. I wonder if there's, is there a, a kind of perfect size company for for that effect to be working? So obviously if they, you know, maybe they'll iron out their issues, get a bit bigger, perhaps, you know, certain elements get automated in their production, you know, they get a bit bigger so it's more difficult to handle their social media but all of a sudden they're making more money, but they're not the the small personal bespoke company they were. And at that point, does does people's affection for them drop off? And then, you know, their sales drop off and they can no longer compete with the big boys. Yeah. Do you do yeah. you have Is a, there like do, a perfect size? I don't know. It's really hard. You know, I don't I don't know if anybody knows this. You know, do you you know, you can't just pluck a figure. Okay, right. Here's um, here's a figure that uh, me plus three directors want to take out of the company. Uh, here's, you know, this is the kind of position that we'd like to be. These are the products that we want to be serving. Um, is that there? You know, and then you freeze that bubble, and then that, well, that is your business model. It, well, I, that's I think if you, that's an impossibility, isn't it? It is. But I also think if you start the company with that thought, it is destined to fail because I think the only way you can you can compete against the big boys even if it is only on a, a limited scale is to be absolutely to buy into doing and loving what you do 
rather mm-hmm. than yeah i think that all these kind of companies that that do achieve this this kind of level are born out of not maybe a hobby but you know someone wanting to do something because they love doing it not because they want to make money out of it i think as soon as you start thinking <clears throat> you know in a kind of a dragon's den business kind of way as you're trying to set up a company you know you're never you're never really going to convince people that you're in it for anything but the money mm. I, i think social media uh, is brilliant at for companies to share their the the love that they have for what they do um whether that's twitter instagram youtube you know i think those are, are amazing avenues to to show people how much you love producing a product and then people can buy into that you know it's like um a field notes brand you know that's very much how i got into kind of buying their stuff because i bought into what they were doing because they seem to care about it and love it you know all their videos about how they kind of thought up the new notebooks and how they came to be in the first place were all just absolutely jam packed full of charm and and love for what they were doing and that's why you buy into it i mean it's just a notebook in the other in you know by any other description just like these are just bikes you know they're nice bikes but you're buying into tradition and craftsmanship and and that's their story isn't it and that's what social media can help do it helps you tell your story and in that way you can definitely beat the big brands because i think for a big brand to tell their story and for it to be believable is much more difficult because people have an idea of big brands have been you know corporate behemoths and behemoths yeah i think if we if we if we carry on down the line of uh <coughs> bikes because it's a re- it's a really uh, easy one to do because they are you know all these brands are, are absolutely nailing it on social mm, by media by the way i picked you out a bike I, i sent you a message of the bike i picked you out <laughs> is it you've never shown me your chopper before <laughs> i thought you'd look lovely um up and down four marks high street on that <laughs> oh it's a bit of a hill <laughs> <laughs> sorry did you, did you have a chopper as a kid i didn't i, w- I dearly wanted a chopper oh. i didn't even have a, a bmx i wanted oh. a bmx did you have a, a rally grifter no yeah i did have a grifter yeah the grip God, that it was, that's a pretty Yeah, I had a, I had a Commando, which was okay. It's like a smaller version of the. There was the a, Grifter, there was a strike, but... Striker Grifter Commando. Oh, uh, no, Striker Commando Com- Grifter. Commando was camouflaged. Yeah. Not so camouflaged <laughs> that it wasn't nicked from outside my house. <laughs> <laughs> you sure it wasn't there? You just missed it. <clears throat> yeah, and we used to put it. It, it had like a, a twist gear uh, yeah. system on the handle. Just like the Grifter. You yeah. put it in slip slip gear. For a yep. bit of a chip, if you're going to do a chips manoeuvre. Yeah, mine got stuck in third gear forever. <laughs> Although I could still pull a wheelie Story in third gear all the way down to the shops. Not really. It's about Is mine. that because somebody stole your front wheel? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't have been a problem. Uh, sorry, I inter- uh, interrupted. So if you are a small brand, then like everybody says, you know, all oh, the social media has leveled the playing field and it's, it's an easy comparison to draw uh, or an easy statement to make. But there were brands doing that beforehand, weren't there? Uh, it's just that there's a certain 
so for example let me think um like innocent they're they're yeah. pre-social media aren't they i mean they've they've yes. ad- they've adopted social media and mm. they've nailed it and 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 you know they're now owned by coca-cola aren't they i think yeah um but they still retain their their voice uh, that, that that they had originally, which is which is good to see. the The more insidious side of it is the big brands starting to ape and copy the smaller brands to stamp them out. Essentially, aren't they? They're not. Yeah. They're not. They're not adopting it because that's the best way for them to sell products. Do you think? Um. Yeah. So, well, I think they see success, and the big brands are always going to try and copy success, aren't they? Yeah. So if you so let's take beer for an example. Um, so uh, all the big boys now are starting to produce these kind of uh, craft, craft beers, craft beers, and yeah. it's very hard unless you read this very small writing on the back of it. It's quite hard to to know which ones are um, little small producers <clears throat> and which ones are a large producer. That's true, but I wonder if it kind of doesn't matter because if you're if you tend to buy your beer from a supermarket you're you were previously not the sort of person who would buy craft beer anyway so just because there's something that looks like a craft beer in a supermarket and you buy it is that taking any sales away from the original craft beer makers no because you'd have to go somewhere else and buy their stuff uh yeah so they, they're kind of they're using they're using the kind of artisanal producers uh, kind of voice, but they're trying to apply that to their existing consumers. When you were a kid and you went to the bike, there was one bike shop in your town, maybe yep. two if you were lucky. And the, you know, that that's the bike. Those are the bikes you bought, unless you mm. bought from Argos or uh, yep. Littlewoods catalog. Uh, that was as far as it went, wasn't it? Uh, it now was. you, you can, you know, it's a little brand. You can, if you've got a good campaign together and a, and a great following on whatever it is, Instagram, mm. or whatever, you can, you can sell that product into a market that would ordinarily be uh, dominated by the, by the big boys. Uh, I guess it's similar to uh, in the old days, um, record distribution when, um, you know, you had the big, you know, Polydor and, um, yeah. Uh, Warners and all, all, of the, all the big uh, EMI, um, but then you had uh, the car- cartel was na- the name of the the company that distributed all the small independents yeah. under one banner. Um, but they didn't differentiate themselves as as brands, as it were. You just you wanted niche products then because you know you liked indie bands or punk bands or whatever they were. It's not the same now, is it? When you talk oh. about a coffee shop or <clears throat> Uh, you know, th- these are these are mainstream everyday ob- things that you're consuming. Well, I don't know. I just wonder if if social media is is just replacing social in this case. It's you know, it really is living up to its name. And that, like, if you were a, a keen cyclist and you wanted to buy a bike that wasn't in the Littlewoods catalogue, and maybe you were in a cycling club, you'd be talking to friends, and maybe they knew of a specialist bike shop and. And that's that's kind of what social media does now, isn't it? Or what it can do. It's recommendations, it's word of mouth, but in a digital form. Mm-hmm. Totally. And what in terms of uh, what do you think the big brands are taking from what the smaller ones have, have done and, and how are they operating differently? Well, definitely um, the, this kind of thing about, um, uh, you know, a voice and kind of, a, a human side to the corporations is is definitely something that they've learned from smaller companies. 
you know, all the big brands now, you know, their social media is, is much more personality driven. Um, I think, um, I think one thing that small brands kind of artisanal stuff or, you know, hipster brands really started was incredible photography. Um, you know, we've seen all the kind of Kickstarter things and, you know, artisanal craftsmen on Vimeo, you know, producing bespoke, I don't know, felt hats or something. And it all looks beautiful. And you kind of buy into that craft. And I think, you know, the bigger brands do that now with with the kind of style of photography and video that they produce. Um, I think one of the, the other things that the big brands do is is they try and talk to not necessarily their audience about their products, but they talk to their audience about different products. Big one of these is Red Bull that, you know, is a huge business now. But when it started out, you know, as this kind of energy drink um, maker, you know, it was quite niche, you know, couldn't compete against Coca-Cola or Pepsi or whoever. Um, But then it got itself involved in, you know, kind of X Games and, you know, flug tag and kind of all this kind of crazy adventure sports and stuff. And now that attracts people to the Red Bull brand, you know, and they're in Formula One. And so I think talking outside of your, your regular audience, um, but talking to an audience that's similar is, uh, is a great way to, to kind of compete. So to sum up, we, what are we saying about, um, do we think it's leveled the playing field or is it just created a a whole new area of of competition or are we going to are we going to see it going away or what's the future hold? I, I think the internet leveled the playing field and social media has given the impression that it's more level than it is. Mhm. Cuz small companies are never going to be able to compete with big money from the big brands. Um but it does allow small companies to reach kind of like-minded customers wherever they may be. Um, I don't think that's necessarily something that's going to die out, but I think there's probably going to be a constant cycle of uh, kind of fashions of companies and fashions of, you know, advertising um, that, that just kind of ebbs and flows. So you'll, you might see that, you know, Spoke bikes go out of fashion in 10 years and, you know, cold press, slow drip coffee is laughed at in a, you know, five years time and everyone's drinking tea from tea bags. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a great point. But do you think that's because the people who are putting, uh, you know, so say you're a small business owner and you run a business, um, put this in my notes, is like, is discipline is boring um, for a creative person. It's, a, you know, mm. Discipline is great, but for a short term, and therefore the person that starts up a coffee shop in the kind of hipster style, how long are they going to be able to make coffees for um, before that becomes really, really boring? And then they're on to the next thing, whether that's, I don't know, sliders, sandwiches or hamburgers or whatever. That's definitely a thing. But if you're into, you know, if you opened your coffee shop because you absolutely love coffee, then you've probably got more staying power than someone who's opened a coffee shop because they think coffee's cool. That's true. That's true. I mean, I guess, it, but if you're opening up a coffee shop with the mind of make, of opening 35 coffee shops, 
then that's a dangerous proposition for a small well, business, you're an, isn't it? You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you hate coffee, don't you? No, I love coffee. It's just uh, people who open coffee shops, I hate. <laughs> no. well, we should leave it there then. I mean, yeah, so, you know, it's it, you've got to decide when you start a small business. And I'm going to follow on with my website of the week from this is that, you know, how much energy can, can you put into a new brand uh, before you launch that as a business? Because mm. you will either, you know, will you die of exhaustion because there's nobody to help you, nobody to support you, unless you've got big money to have a marketing department. You know, I deal with marketing departments for small, medium companies, um, and uh, they are often bereft of ideas or energy and there's three or four of them. So let alone one business owner and also, you know, you're working all day delivering that product. Um, so it's very easy for that brand to die very quickly, isn't it? So yeah. uh, although you can compete with the big boys, if you're trying to run along with them, it can be very, very hard unless you have, like you say, a singular passion for that particular product that you're selling. And that's why London was dotted with those businesses, you know, that were niche, niche businesses. But there, mm. there's just no room for that on the on the British High Street anymore. Sadly, yeah, true. Uh, so your uh, your website of the week, yeah, it's um, umbrellacollective.co. Uh, I was sent uh, a lovely package through the post uh, this week by Me too. Tim, Fow- Tim Fowler. I think one of the three directors of yes. this new business. Now they've they've got. They, I have to say their business idea is great. Um, uh, so they've taken the kind of shared working space, but they've uh, combined that with, and I'm, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but they've combined that with a creative agent, a creative agency that uses freelance pull-in talent. So yeah. you you sign up to a desk uh, at one of their working places. I think they've only got one at the moment, but they're looking to expand. Um, and you will then be called when you go into work there. You pay one fixed price. And you will be involved in briefs and pitches. So they will use your expertise to fulfill client briefs. Um, but you also get a working place um, at yeah. the end of the day, which I think is a absolutely brilliant idea. It's great. Uh, it's what everyone wants if, for, from a shared working space, isn't it? They want to be involved, you know, and they want to benefit from that kind of creative ecosystem. Yeah, because I was in one today and there was just a lot of animosity between people arguing over shared spaces because they didn't want to share <laughs> any yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, uh, I think their uh, Umbrella's branding is amazing. They've done a brilliant job with it. Um, the package stuff. I was sent was absolutely fantastic. I had already bought one, so I've now got two. So if anybody wants <laughs> one, uh, drop me a line and I'll pop it in the post to you um, and sp- spread their love. But the the, pr- the quality of the print and the design inside it is absolutely it's a gorgeous little magazine isn't it spectacular yeah so uh i'm i really really recommend them and uh if you're looking for uh, agency work then uh i i think you do really well to go to them because they are independent and yet they their experience is massive you know they've got rough trade records innocent smoothies um and they you know the two of the big players in uh in independent uh, communication so yeah really recommend them they're great i was involved in one um i went in uh, and helped them put together a pitch for a, some work and it was a really interesting environment to pitch in because there's a couple of the directors were there 
And then there was a writer and there's a couple of graphic designers and a couple of illustrators. And we're all, it's very unusual at kind of at that stage to, to have so many different people kind of contributing to a brief. Um, was that, was that was refreshing? Exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting. It was really exciting. Yeah. yeah. Really, really nice. Um, so yes, great stuff on Brother Collective. Yeah, uh, best, my best was, yeah. My website of the week is not a website, but a podcast. And it's the grief cast by the comedian Carrie Adeloid. Uh, so she runs, she lost her dad when she was 14 or 15, I think. And it took her a long time to come to terms with it. And so she's doing a pop- podcast. It's been going for a couple of years, I think, uh, where she talks to comedians about loss and grief. Um, so while it deals with really sad issues, it's often very, very funny. Um, so I've only listened to a couple so far. I listened to the um, Adam Buxton episode and the David Baddiel episode. And um, it's fantastic. Really oh, great. Good I, haven't, I so haven't heard that one. The Grief What's it called? Cast. The Grief, the grief cast. cast. Cast to people below um, the belt. Yes, yes. Uh, have you got a pie, John? <laughs> oh, <clears throat> yes. I've got one. Um, it's instantly qual- uh, disqualified because it is just... It's actually called a top crust. And I oh. thought a top crust was just, it had a nice crust, but no, there's nothing underneath. It's like oh, me. Just, it's a, it's a <laughs> so the embodiment of my personality. It's a, it's a stew with a hat. Yeah. Mm, I've gone straight in. Sorry. It was quite good, actually, with a bit of mash and gravy and where's stuff. It, where's it from? Sainzo's. Um, okay. Just, the pastry's got a really weird taste to it. Um, I don't know whether it's because it's butter pastry. Did I miss you saying what flavour it is? It's beef, just beef. Okay. But do you know what? As a disqualified pie, it really is quite good. <laughs> um, and almost the pie almost makes it down the down the back. Um, it's probably three quarters of the way down, but there is no base. Um, mm. So I sadly. It, it loses its position as a as a qualified pie, but yep. I would give that a seven as a pie. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my pie is uh, from my local butchers, Robson's in Hampton Hill, and it's a venison and mushroom. So it's their kind of traditional short crust and flaky pastry pie. Um, nice succulent venison. It's not very. No, venison isn't always particularly gamey, but it doesn't taste dissimilar to beef, this pie. Mm. Quite strong mushroomy flavours. It's good. Robson's pies are always brilliant. So that's going to get an eight. Very good. Mm. So this <sighs> is our lo- this is our last episode before um, Rob goes off on his luxury cruise um, across <laughs> the orbital. And yep. um, I, uh, yeah, so we will be back in what, April? Uh, yes. It will be, won't it? Be um, the beginning of April, we'll be back for a new a new season of yeah, North East South. A new format. <laughs> we'll, we'll have a new format. Yeah, no, uh, we're going to be doing interviews. Yes, not just us talking to no. each other. That's not an no. interview. So it is going to get interesting. Yeah, if it wasn't already. And if you like this, then just stick the Hoover on in another room and uh, and have that droning away, or listen to some My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, 
whichever. Um, but uh, yes, it's been lovely speaking to you, Robert. You too, John. Um, and uh, I wish you all the best for this weekend. Thank you. You too. Um, Enjoy. I'm going to uh, Norfolk for a wedding. Uh, well, thanks for listening, everyone. Sorry, John. It's been a, it's been a joy. Yes. Hurrah! Bye. Ugh. And how's Ralph? He's feeling very sorry for himself. <laughs> Poor little sausage. Which teeth is it then? He's oh, two. his front two. So he's either smashed them in or he's worn them away, gnawing something. Yeah. Um, but he was fine yesterday. And then he just came in in the evening and he was bleeding from his mouth. Bless him. Yeah, they're really loose. They're going to, you know, they're going to yeah. pull them out on Friday. Yeah. But apparently they don't feel them. So it's not like us. That's good. Mm. But he's a bit young to be losing teeth. Well, yeah, I guess so. You'll be uh, making him smoothies from now on, will you? <laughs> Make his own. It's going to cost me a fortune. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, chapter five. Chapter chapter five. Yes, a conspiracy uh, unmasked. We yeah. are we are still in the Shire. <laughs> we are. I think we'll be in the Shire for a while. Yeah, will we? Um, oh, we're leaving soon, aren't we? I don't know. Is the old forest part seems, of the Shire? Seems to be taking forever. Yeah, isn't it? Oh no, I guess not. Breeze mm. just the other side, and that's that's the big people, isn't it? This book's going to take us a long time to get through. <laughs> At two years, I reckon. <laughs> I mean, although I look at kind of what we've got through already and it, it's not too bad I guess if we skip the appendices yeah. that's, that's probably another 150 pages uh, so what did you make of uh, Conspiracy Unmasked John? Oh, it was good, it was interesting um, reading it again after a few years and I hadn't noticed how much detail there is about the way hobbits live in it and yeah. uh, I love the description of um of Brandy Hall and sort of taking up a whole hillside. Yeah, it's really nice that because obviously that's something that's entirely uh, absent from the, the film. Um, but yeah, it's nice to get uh, a view of Hobbit living that isn't Hobbiton. Mm. Kind of the grander, the grander Hobbits. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'd like to see you draw Brandy Buck Hall. I think that yeah. would be a good one for your, for your cityscape. Yeah, I might try that. Be rather large. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give that a go. Um, yeah, no, we, we see the, I mean, the basic premise of the plot is that it turns out that Frodo's mates have been uh, colluding together to uh, to go on this quest with him. And they are they are pretty uh, forthright in the fact that they are ready to sacrifice themselves. They are, aren't they? For him. Again, this, you know, this must kind of have those echoes with with the war. I think so. I think he can he can draw draw on that, can't he? Yeah. But he you know, he was very slow to join up. Um, I think he was very busy in his uh, acad- academic work. Yeah. Um, but I imagine you know that that frenzy in nineteen four late nineteen fourteen of mm. people signing up to uh, Kitchener's army would have uh, would have been much like this. They didn't know why they were doing it, but their mates were doing it, and they That's weren't going to miss out. Yeah. Um, I don't think we quite see that. Uh, <laughs> swathes of death in Lord of the Rings but no. you know fair, fair amount um, the other thing that struck me was again Father, Farmer Maggot yep. uh, he, he's a bit magical isn't he he's he's 
he's all over the place. He's yeah, he's a he's a little kind of nugget of of wisdom in the Shire, um, but kind of underused in a way. Mm. Doesn't he get mentioned later on, Tom Tom Bombadil? The Bomber? Uh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It is a long time since I've read the books. Yeah. Probably at least fifteen years. So you know, my memory of them is uh, is vague to say the least. Well, thankfully, there are no elves in this chapter. One mention of them, but there are two songs. Yes, uh, is this the kind of song that you sing when you're in the bath? No, I'm much more kind of grime and uh, speed garage. Garage. Yes, that's how they say, it, isn't it? The kids. Yeah, speed garage. Uh, but no, but there's a bit of um, communal bathing. Uh, you know, um, I am Spartacus style yes. thing yeah. going on here. Yeah, there's, there's three hot steaming baths set up, isn't there, for the <laughs> travellers? They are professional gentlemen, aren't they? They are. You know, everything is. You can imagine them going off to off to war with their kind of campaign chests full of full of all the stuff that that is entirely unnecessary for war, but entirely necessary for a for a comfortable life. Definitely. I, it takes me back to doing uh, Frank's diary and yeah. and uh, some of the things that were sent out to uh, to officers out there. You know, can you send my uh, my guns out? Yes. <laughs> Fancy a bit of grouse shooting. Yes. <laughs> They're proliferating in no man's land. Yeah. Well, they, they, there's actually a drawing of them doing a pheasant shoot while they were being bombarded by the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wonderful, stiff British upper lip. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so what else comes up in this chapter? The, apart from um, Mary and Pippin and Sam all having been colluding, um, Fatty Bulger, your favourite character name, is uh, is a key part of the conspiracy, isn't he? Yeah, well, he, he, he really doesn't want to get involved in at all, does he? He wants to stay at home. He does. But, uh, but- he actually he ends up having the most uncomfortable... Uh, the most uncomfortable story, really, doesn't he? Yeah. So he's he's staying at home, sort of, with uh, playing diversionary tactics, really. Um, trying to make out that, that Frodo is going to stay at the house that he's bought, which, again, is something that's entirely uh, absent from the films. Uh, he's going he's gonna to make out that Frodo's living in, uh, in Buckland for... Uh, oh, it's not actually Buckland, is it? What's the little village he... He lives in Crick Hollow. Crick, Crick Hollow. Yeah, um, he's going to make out he's living there for as long as he can possibly keep up the pretense, and he's even keeping some of Frodo's clothes to, uh, I assume, to hang on the line to show that he's uh, he's in. Um, yeah, but he's uh, he's the one that's going to have to face the tricky questions, isn't he? Yeah, they're just they're just legging it. <laughs> Typical hobbit. Yeah. Uh, the the end is quite dreamlike. He he has a he has a strange dream that he's looking out of a high window over a it says here a dark sea of tangled trees, mm. um, and then he smells he can hear something smelling and snuffling, which we later find out is definitely Gollum. Um, yeah, but uh, he then dreams of the sea, uh, a sound he's never heard, which is a peculiar thing to dream, isn't it? Something you've never it experienced, is. and the mind can do that, can't it? it can, and sort of make up things. Yeah. Um, but he's on a, on a dark heath looking over the White Towers. I've never never noticed that passage before. It's, no, it's, it's really it's really melancholy, isn't it? It is, and very different to the rest of the chapter. Yeah. 
And you're not quite sure what's going to happen next because it says suddenly a light came in the sky and there was a noise of thunder. Yeah. And that's where we'll end. Mm. I, mean, I think that um, I haven't got a word for the week, but um, I think that's going to be a little, we're going to halt for quite a while now, aren't we? We are. Yes. I'm heading off on holiday, so it'll be, uh, it'll be a few weeks before we get to chapter six in the old forest. Yeah, so um, look forward to coming back to it. Anything else you'd like to add about this week's? No, I think that covers it. Again, it's another quite short chapter, isn't it? Yeah, 